You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, there are obscure cases that sometimes uh, appear before the Supreme Court uh, here in the United States. And, and one of them, however, has some potentially significant ramifications for religious liberty. I'm talking specifically about a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo and Relentless versus Department of Commerce. The cases involve an also very obscure thing called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, a law governing fishery management in federal waters, which authorizes the National Marine Fishery Service, bear with me, I'm going somewhere with this, under narrow circumstances to require fishing vessels to carry and pay federal observers who enforce agency regulations. What does this have to do with the religious liberty? It's a fair question, and the answer is a mouthful of a term called the Doctrine of Chevron Deference. It's a principle that directs courts to defer to federal agencies' interpretation of the laws that they administer when the text is silent or ambiguous. This could have pretty significant ramifications as it relates to the court's power to interpret the law and Congress's power to legislate, as well as the balance of power among all of the branches. There's a lot to talk about this. And uh, on top of this, we have a lot of stories of religious liberty here in the United States uh, that we need to cover. And of course, to talk about religious liberty and the law, we turn always to Andrea Pachodi-Bear, legal analyst for EWTN News. She also directs the Conscience Project and is a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. You can follow her on Twitter, or X now, at Bear Pachodi, and visit conscienceproject.org. Andrea, thank you for joining me. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to join you and talk about these very, very interesting issues. Well, they are. Uh, they're more interesting than people think when they first see a name such as uh, the 1984 Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council and uh, the Loper Bright case in front of the Supreme Court. And yet, these are the types of cases that we don't seem to realize that can have a direct bearing on our daily lives, don't they? Absolutely. And I think it's it's probably important to think about, as you mentioned in your description of all of this, the balance of powers between the three different branches of government and the pickle that we're in and why the Supreme Court and their review of this issue is so important is it seems like we're out of balance. Um, and it's finding its way in in the situations where Congress will enact a law Maybe there's some ambiguity in how that law plays out, and the executive branch, the administrative branch, fills in the gaps. And the problem is it it oftentimes takes liberties in filling in the gaps. In the cases that you mentioned before involving the Magnus-Stevens Act dealing with fisheries are, are such cases like that. It's where there's a law that Congress passed. It um, authorizes the National Marine Fisheries Service to require fishing vessels to have observers, um, but it doesn't say anything about who's going to pay for those observers. And these small fishing boats um, have pushed back and said, hey, we should not have to cover the cost of monitors as the agencies are, are requiring us to do. Um, and we don't want to defer to the agency passing that burden on to us um, in their interpretation of the law. So the long and short of this is um, it's basically putting some holds on the overreach of the administrative state. 
in saying to Congress, if you're going to pass a law, you need to be detailed about it. And to the executive branch, you really can't fill in gaps and in, in a way. That's for Congress to do. And most importantly, that the Supreme Court will be telling the lower courts that their job is n- not to allow the executive branch that leeway that they've been taking um, for since the 1980s. Um, how does this relate to religious freedom? Well, we probably all remember the Little Sisters of the Poor. And that's a perfect example of where Congress passed the Affordable Care Act and the administrative agencies in charge of implementing it came up with things like the contraceptive mandate. That's nowhere in the Affordable Care Act. And and that tends to trample upon, in general, all freedoms, but in particular, religious freedom. Yeah, and, and to that, so the, the Chevron uh, deference, as, as it's called, um, has been subject to some controversy, I know, beyond obviously the, the fisheries and even the contraceptive mandate. Is it? A, it's a bigger constitutional question now, isn't it? It really is, uh, Matthew. And, and what's really interesting and I think important to note is the Supreme Court in recent years hasn't even looked to this notion of deferring to the administrative agency in charge of implementing and instead just looks at the law and says, is this law clear on this issue or not? Um, and so the problem really has be- be- become that the Chevron deference continues to confuse the lower courts. Some courts really work at it to try to figure out what a law means, and others give too much deference to the agency in charge. I think it was interesting. I listened to the three-and-a-half-hour-long oral <laughs> argument um, held by the Supreme Court, and Paul Clement, who is a former solicitor general, was representing one of the fishing boats, Relentless. And he was saying this just puts the thumb on the, the, the scales in favor of the government um, against private citizens or private groups like these fishermen. And so we really want to make sure that, that there's justice when there are controversies that get to the courts as well. So I think it's, um, it's, it's very interesting, not just for lawyers, but for all Americans to think about the role of the Supreme Court in hopefully correcting course. But this was assumed to be a good idea at one point, wasn't it? You know, it's very interesting that you said it. Sometimes we, <laughs> the Supreme Court in, uh, comes up with these workable rules just to try to figure out how to administer justice. And, and the author of the Chevron case was um, Justice John Paul Stevens. He tried. He made what he thought would be a workable rule, right? We've got experts that are in charge of these agencies. They know kind of the details, how laws come and play out in practice. And as as we advance in society, that we want to make sure that it works well. The problem is he didn't really appreciate the growth of the administrative state. And since 1984, the administrative state in the United States is just really it grown beyond um, anyone's uh, understanding. And and that um, allows for the Supreme Court to just say we, we got it wrong. Um, before his passing, Justice Antonin Scalia, who at the time Chevron came down, said he agreed with it. As the years passed, he realized, no, this really wasn't a great idea after all. Yeah, I, I was um, going to and, ask you about that because I remembered he did have a, a 
change of heart about this as, as he saw what had been unleashed. Yes. No, and that's a really important thing to, to be flexible and understanding. I think um, the the court is currently comprised, and the majority of the court's conservative majority are what's known as originalists or textualists. And their, their p- perspective on the judiciary is, you know, our role is to look at what either the Constitution says or, in the case of, of laws that have been passed by Congress, what the law says, and our role isn't to go beyond that. A textualist understanding of um, the role of a judge doesn't like Chevron deference at all because mm-hmm. it, it basically defers to an agency what is the proper responsibility of a court or, if something so unclear, the responsibility of Congress to fix it. So what's the response to those who say, well, hold on a second, because we've been hearing for years that unelected judges or appointed judges, people who are never forced to stand before the people, are creating laws, they're weighing in on laws. How is this any better? Well, first off, I don't think judges that are consider themselves originalists or textualists are creating laws, right? right? They're not creating rights out of the Constitution or expanding what the law is is supposed to cover as it's written. Um, and that's where when there is a Supreme Court decision that that is not what the people want, then Congress can pass a new law um, or can clarify. You know, if, if the Supreme Court interprets or any lower court interprets a law that's at odds with Congress's um, desire that that law would be, be passed. That's where our democratic system kind of really works beautifully. Mm-hmm. It can clarify things. And there have been cases where the Supreme Court has said, hey, you know, Congress, you're not clear on this. And Congress has gone and amended laws. So I think that um, it, is, it is very important. Um, getting rid of Chevron deference puts the courts in the proper role that they have to rule based on what the law says. Um, and it asks a lot of our lawmakers. And at the same time, like I said before, it's really stopping the continued growth of the administrative state into issues that nobody was thinking about or nobody voted for. As you are always very prudent and sage in pointing out, it's very difficult to know exactly how the justices on, on SCOTUS are going to vote on anything. What's your sense in this? Because uh, I know you've written on this topic, and it did seem that uh, certainly Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Katanji Brown, Jackson, were very supportive of keeping Chevron. Others were not. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not sure if those three more left-leaning justices would be supportive if there was a different administration. (laughs) I think that they're supportive (laughs) of it. Um, during the Biden administration, and that was one of the things that Justice Brett Kavanaugh pointed out. You know, everyone loves Chevron deference when when the people that they like are in power, um, but when four years later they don't like Chevron deference. Um, and so I think that uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch were very, very vocal during oral argument um, uh, against Chevron deference. Um, in the past, Justice Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas have also expressed their concerns the bigger issue will be, so what do we do now? Is it a, a specific overruling of the Chevron case? Is it looking at a modification? Or there is always the possibility that the court will look at 
this controversy before them and say that that you never even get to the issue of deferring to the agency because the law is clear and and it doesn't authorize agency to pass pass the cost on and that was something that Chief Justice John Roberts was pressing um, Paul Clement, that that advocate that I mentioned before, on you know, is there really ambiguity in this? Isn't it clear that 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 the burden for monitoring shouldn't be passed on to the fishermen? So it will be very interesting. I do think that um, the court is looking at Chevron, and it's going to be a really important move forward for the court in clarifying the jurisprudence. Yeah, we'll hold that thought. We have a lot more to talk about, including certain states that are denying kids adoptions if parents use the wrong pronouns. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A lot more with Andrea Pachotti-Bear after the break. to Cresta in the afternoon. I am not Al Cresta. I am, however, Matthew Bunsen filling in for Al today. And I'm continuing my conversation with a legal analyst uh, for EWTN and EWTN News, uh, who's also the director of the Conscience Project and a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. I'm talking about Andrea Pachodi bear who I'm also honored to say is a friend. We were just talking, uh, Andrea, about uh, the Chevron deference and uh, the administrative state. And if there is one possible example of um, an administrative state or hyper-regulation or however one wants to describe an intrusive government, it strikes me that uh, the, the movement we've seen in just the last few years on gender ideology uh, strikes me as uh, a real potential avenue for hyper-regulation and real threats to religious liberty. Would you agree with that? Wholeheartedly, Matthew, wholeheartedly. Um, it's, it's very interesting how this ideology has really kind of taken hold in, um, in a federal government, in its internal operations, mandating employees, federal employees, to buy into the ideology without exception. And it's also manifested itself in executive orders uh, that President Biden has issued, as well as implementation of those executive orders into the inner workings of agencies, such as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and some proposed guidance that they've issued, as well as, and most disturbingly, um, proposed rules and regulations being issued by the Department of Health and Human Services involving who I think are some of our most vulnerable, and that's children in foster care settings. Mm -hmm. Well, you had a a, a piece in, uh, I think it's The Federalist, uh, and I would send everyone to thefederalist.com to read this, and the title of it is Blue States Deny Kids Adoption If Parents Use Wrong Pronouns. And you have in here the story, I just want to briefly summarize this, uh, uh, relating to foster families uh, and their experiences. One uh, has to do with uh, adoptive parents of faith. that They've shared their own powerful stories and in a friend of the court brief in support of Jessica. And the, the panel should pay especially close attention, you write, to the experience of Nancy Harmon, who has fostered about 50 children with her husband, Jay. And you cite the December 2021 situation in which the Harmons took in three sisters aged 9, 10, and 11. And the oldest girl had no sooner started unpacking her clothes before she announced... My pronouns are they, them. I'm bisexual, emo, gothic, pagan, witch. Uh, 
And then you write, she looked at Nancy and asked, will you adopt me? And I'll, I'll, everyone should read this uh, to want to leave everyone in suspense, but I think this is a, a perfect example of what families of faith are facing at this point, aren't they? Yeah, no, there's an incredible contagion um, that's afflicting all of our young people in, in this country, and, and gender ideology has really confused a lot of young people to doubt their biological reality. Children that are facing insecurity in their their families of origin, either because of abuse or neglect, have been afflicted to even a greater extent. Um, And so there's lots of young children, either because of mistreatment, neglect, or abuse in the home, that um, are mimicking or or, uh, mirroring this idea of challenging their own biological reality. And the case of, of the Harmon family, it's quite amazing. Um, they, Nancy Harmon was a foster child herself, and um, she and her husband opened their home up to a number of children in addition to their biological children. And the, the most recent was three sisters, as you mentioned before, and the oldest sister, um, these three sisters were in an incredibly abusive and, and neglected um, home with their biological parents. They were taken out of, of that care and placed with the Harmons, and the oldest one is struggling with, to this day, with some confusion about her sexual identity. Um, the family just loved these kids. They ended up um, caring for them, getting all the supports, mental health, physical care, education that they had they'd not received any education um, beginning during the pandemic. And um, when they were asked if they would adopt, they preyed upon it and they agreed to and they were told that they weren't considered a fit family because nancy and her husband weren't willing to affirm or or so thought state officials um the the gender identity of the eldest child mind you that child was 11 at the time um since then uh through the the good um, advice of the children's therapist and just kind of the prayerfulness of the, the Harmon family. They were able to adopt the children and they're continuing to support all three girls, keeping them together, which is really important for their good and helping them to just know that they're loved. Um, I think that it's incredible game changer of having a safe and loving home, especially when you've, you've really suffered abuse and neglect in your lives. But, playing but they're this, not alone. <laughs> they're not I was alone. going to say, yeah, exactly. Playing this out on a, on a much broader scale, we're, we're seeing this in all kinds of different situations now. Absolutely. So I got to know the Harmon family because they were serving as friends of the court in a brief that I had written um, and submitted to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a federal court. So this is a amicus brief, states. right? <laughs> amicus brief. Yes. And... Um, they're in support of a, of a mother, an Oregon mother, um, Jessica Bates. And Jessica, she's widowed. Her husband died in a tragic car accident. She has five biological children. And a um, very prayerful woman decided that it would be God was asking her to open up her home to two um, young children, sibling pair. She applied with the state of Oregon to adopt, and she was uncomfortable with the training that she received, um, saying that she had to 
be willing to take children to gay pride events, um, allow them to dress in ways that were at odds with their biological sex. And these are hypothetical children. She's, you know, and she's thinking of um, adopting children that are under the age of 10. And she said, look, that's at odds with my Christian belief of the nature of the human person. And um, I just can't do that. Um, she was told she would be ineligible to adopt. And she went to federal court. She lost in the lower court. And she's before the Court of Appeals saying that the demands that the state of Oregon are placing on her violate her First Amendment rights to free speech because they're asking her to say things that she doesn't believe in. Um, and they violate her free exercise rights, the exercise of religion, because they are asking her to do things that are at odds with her Christian formation. Um, and some of those things include using pronouns for a child that are inconsistent with a child's biological reality. Now, we have just been talking about Chevron and the administrative state. Uh, is it possible, or are we already seeing, uh, for example, the mandating of pronoun usage and other things uh, by government agencies? You know, I mentioned earlier before, yes, we are. We're seeing it at state and local levels, but we're also seeing it at the federal level with the Biden administration. Um, earlier, I referenced the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission has come up with proposed guidance for businesses that are covered by Title VII, and that's the federal law related to employment discrimination, saying that refusal to use preferred pronouns qualifies as workplace harassment based on sex. We're also seeing in the foster care context where the Department of Health and Human Services has proposed regulations um, basically similar to what Oregon is asking, mm -hmm. um, which say that you need to be gender affirming, including using preferred pronouns, allowing for um, presenting uh, based on, on someone's gender identity, even if it's at odds with biological reality. Now, the HHS allows for some religious-based exemptions, um, but basically limits the ability of people of faith to care for children who claim an LGBTQ identity. And we've seen that people of faith are some of our nation's best and most diligent and kind of most trusted foster mm -hmm. care and adoption parents to exclude their ability to serve, serve youth, children, based on gender ideology just seems to be um, only asking for adding more injury to children who have already suffered the unthinkable injury of not being cared for from their homes. So I'm going to guess uh, that it's only a matter of time before we have many more suits working their way through uh, the, the courts, probably all the way up to the Supreme Court. Would that be a fair prognostication? You know, I think it will. I'm hoping that the Ninth Circuit, which unfortunately is notoriously very left-leaning, liberal-leaning, will see Jessica Bates's case as being um, a very important civil rights case, free speech, freedom of religion. Um, if they don't, I think that Jessica's lawyers from the Alliance Defending Freedom are prepared to bring her case to the Supreme Court. Um, and looking at how the court has dealt with these two important freedoms, I think that Jessica should be victorious in the end. Um, but the issue, and this is something that my, the amicus families that 
that contributed to my brief mentioned, lawsuits take time. And children are waiting for solutions. And to have the doors of loving homes closed while these cases make their way through our courts is, is just a shame and, and a grave injustice to these kids. Yeah. Well, while I have you, I want to turn to a slightly more happy topic, and that is a commentary that you recently wrote for the National Catholic Register. Catholic schools see resurgence of classical education, and it's a robust renewal of Catholic education in our country is underway. What is that about? So, yes, I love to end on a good note. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> <laughs> the least we can do. You know, and this is, I, I guess they go hand in hand, right? I mean, in, in the face of profound darkness, more light is needed. And we see that um, our Catholic schools have always been beacons of light, um, but we're seeing a resurgence, a renewal of Catholic education. And in part, as more and more Catholic schools are turning to classical education, to be able to offer their students and their students' families a better understanding of the faith and a better encounter, a more rich encounter with what is good, true, and beautiful. Yeah, I was going to ask, so just a quick definition, if you can, of classical education. You know, that's a really great question, and I think um, I won't give it for myself. I will refer to a school in very close to where I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, it was a school that had been kind of a languishing parochial school, um, and then it it was taken up and converted into a Catholic uh, classical school by none other than um, Father Sirico, who used to run up... Um, the Acton Institute, and um, basically the the components of a, ca- a classical education almost are like regular education, right? There's nothing new. Um, it's looking at the richness of of tradition and um, the beauty of of literature and the arts. But I'm going to quote from you the um, definition from Sacred Heart Academy in Grand Rapids, and they say, "quote Classical education." begins with an authentic view of the human person as created in the image of God and created to share in his divine life. This understanding of the human person leads to a formation which is suited to the development of a child toward personal sanctification and full participation in a distinctly Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian culture. Classical education is most naturally and completely done in a Catholic school where it can be sustained and perfected by the sacramental life of the church. It's, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> well, it raises a question, why wouldn't you want to have this? Exactly. Well, and, and this is where um, I think all of us were drawn to um, thinking about education for the ends that it can provide as far as you know job security or higher education and not thinking about education as forming the person forming the person in their character and preparing the person um, to grow closer in their relationship with God. Classical education is an encounter, again, with what I was saying, what is beautiful. And we know that God creates what is beautiful. So it's the perfect uh, connection between our faith and formation. And a perfect way to end our conversation. I'm sorry, it has to be always so short. Uh, Andrea Pachotti bear thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. When we come back, a few closing thoughts on this hour. This is Cresta in the afternoon. <laughs> 